Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Addiction Talk. We are so glad that you joined us this evening because every time we bring Addiction Talk to you, we're bringing important conversations that we need to be talking about when it comes to addiction and recovery. And we have a special treat tonight. We have a very special guest with us coming on tonight. And you saw a little glimpse of her. We were just giving you a sneak peek. But we have Miss Tani Laura with us tonight. And just to give you a little bit of a background of Miss Tani Laura, she is the host of the Recovery Rocks podcast. She's also the founder of Sobriety Tea Party which is a play on the term. I love it. She's also been dubbed the sober sexpert. So y'all know we are going to dive all in on tonight's conversation because she has a lot to say. So welcome, Miss Tani. How are you today? Hi, Joy. I'm good. How are you? Great. We're so glad you joined us because when we came across your blog and all that you're doing and you know sharing your story and stuff like that, we said we have to have you on the show because you have such an interesting perspective and in just all that you're doing to raise awareness. So thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for what you're doing to raise awareness. Yeah, so we want to get right into this. So one of the things that really struck me, Tani, about your story, and I think it's not uncommon for a lot of people, is you struggled with denial. I know you suffered with alcohol addiction. And interestingly enough, we have you on during Alcohol Awareness Month. But you struggled for so long to come to terms with that you were struggling with alcohol addiction. Why do you think you were in denial so long about what you were going through? Yeah, that's such an important question. Um, I just thought I was a party girl who liked having a good time. You know, I was a career bartender and I hung out with other career bartenders and that's just what, what I did. Like, you know, I drank the way that we drank. Um, so I didn't really think much of it. I was just like, this is just how people drink. Once I started to hang out with people that were not also in the bartending scene, that's when I really started to realize, oh, okay. Like maybe, like maybe everyone doesn't want to take a, uh, take a shot on Tuesday night. Like, you know, um, so that, that really kind of opened up my eyes, but like, I honestly thought that I had to look like what Hollywood and the media portrayed as like a rock bottom in order to get sober or even realize I had a, a drinking problem because I didn't look anything like that. You know, I was in college. I was working full time. Um, I was I was a fitness instructor. You know, I was never late to anything like I it, I was functioning, fully functioning. Um, and in Hollywood, they show, you know, you lose everything before you get help. And that's just, that's, sure, that's, that's some people's reality, but that doesn't tell the whole story. No, that's so good. And I love that you said that, Tani, because many people, that's what often keeps them from getting help because they're like, well, I'm still functioning. I can still take my kids to do certain things or I'm still living my life. So I don't have a problem. So I know you said once you started hanging out with people outside the bar scene, was there a moment that said, huh, this is not normal. This is not that there's something going on here. Absolutely. I, you know, I got more into the yoga community and um, some friends and I from the yoga studio would go out for, you know, a, a drink after class. And, you know, most people would have one drink or may maybe not even finish their full drink. Um, but I would have multiple drinks and I would like go to the bar and come back with like a round of shots and people would look at me like, mm. why, like, why, like, 
they looked at me like I had two heads, you know, um, which, you know, in my former life, that was just what you did. Everyone kind of takes turn buying rounds of shots. And there's all like not to put that down, like if, you know, if you celebrate and you can drink alcohol normally with a round of shots all to you, I was not one of those people who could drink responsibly. And like that moment was like, just really, really hit me. And it, I, I got sober about a year after that. But that was the moment that I was like, huh, something is a little off here. Mm -hmm. Now, were you having any, were you drinking to the point of blackout? What were the other things that were going on in your life that if somebody is listening to your story and is in that denial place, that might be an indication to them that they might have a problem? Well, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Hollywood shows addiction or substance abuse in a certain way. You know, someone who wakes up and there's a bottle of whiskey on their nightstand and they have to start drinking every morning to function. That wasn't my story at all. You know, I could go days, weeks, months without drinking, even though I usually drank several times a week, I could go longer. Um, but when I did drink, I drank until I blacked out. Like that was just, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, Hey, let's drink till we black out tonight. It was just the habit. It was the behavior of like, it was binge drinking. You know, that's what's, that is what is called binge drinking. And I just, that, that was my life a couple nights a week. And, you know, I never really saw much point in having one beer or one glass of wine. It never made any sense to me, even still in sobriety. When I see, you know, if I'm ha having dinner with a friend and they get a glass of wine and they don't finish it, I'm just like, why did they, why did they even buy that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, my mind still works that way. Do you think it's kind of, you know, when you think about the people who were around you at the time, do you think anybody realized what was going on? Or do you think we're so in our culture these days, alcohol has become such a big part of it that you have so many people who have a problem, but are able to kind of slide under the radar because it's normalized. Excessive drinking is normalized. It is. And I think as a society, we are moving more toward mindfulness. And I think that's with, you know, the westernization of, of yoga and, um, you know, people are eating less meat, people are drinking less alcohol. Um, it's also generational, like more millennials are drinking less than, than ever people our age. So, um, and I think it's part of the information age where it's like, we want to know what's in our food. We want to know what's in the drinks that we're consuming. And um, a lot of people are approaching, you know, the, the sober curious conversation just because they want, they're like, hmm, maybe I should drink a little bit less or they're becoming more aware of when they are reaching for a glass. Um, whereas before it was very, I feel like black and white, it's either like you drink and you, you get wasted or you go to AA. And like, mm -hmm. at least in my world, it was those two options mm -hmm. where now there's so much more nuance that I think is just so great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I think was interesting is what was it that you said from that moment you had the realization that I'm drinking a lot, I'm buying these rounds, maybe something's going on. It took you a year, you said, to actually decide to get help. What was it? in that, that made you wait to that year? What was it in that year that said, let me try something different? Let me get help. In, in that year, I went through a lot of big 
changes. Like I, you know, traveled, traveled internationally for the first time. I moved to New York City um, from, from, I grew up in Texas. So I moved to New York City to pursue my writing career. And, you know, those were two really big mind expanding things that happened in my life. And once I moved to New York and I was, you know, taking a lot of writing classes and hanging out with other writers, I found myself, you know, no longer in the bar scene. I was drinking less, though I was still drinking until I blacked out. But those nights were few and far between. Um, it just, it just, I had this moment of realization. Like, I was just like, huh, like, alcohol just really isn't amplifying my life in any sort of way. Um, and, you know, I told myself, like, though I was taking writing classes and, you know, in the community, I still didn't think I was writing enough. So it was like, I, there was this day in, in a pub in Soho and something about that day, I realized, huh, you just spent four hours in a pub saying you don't have time to write. Like there's, there's something here. So like going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I think there might be a correlation. So the next morning I woke up and I just didn't, I didn't drink. I was like, I'm not going to drink for a week. I'm not going to drink for two weeks. And then my 30th birthday was coming up and I thought, why don't I not drink for a year and just see what happens. And that's why I started the blog sobriety party just to really hold myself accountable. And here we are five and a half years later. So it all started, did you have to actually go to treatment or get any help in addition to just deciding you were going to stop drinking? I, I did not get, uh, I mean, I started seeing a therapist and, you know, I found, I, it took me a little while to find a support group that worked for me, but um, I didn't go to treatment. Um, I, you know, I did, a, I kind of did my own thing through, you know, reading a lot of, um, books helped me like reading, uh, reading sober memoirs really helped me. Like, I think as a writer, that was just kind of like how I digested information. Um, and therapy support groups, yoga, um, you know, that was that was my that was and is my path. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting, because a lot of people in recovery, they often have their own path. I know for a lot of people, treatment is a big deal, which is what we offer here at American Addiction Centers. You find some people just go directly to AA. So it, I, it's interesting to see how everyone finds their path. But I think the thing that you're saying that's so important is that you find that path and that you realize that something's going on. And I love, Tani, that you also incorporated the therapy because as I was learning more about you, it was going through that therapy that you begin to see a correlation between some of the things that you were dealing with mentally mm -hmm. and your drinking. What did you discover as you started going to therapy and getting digging deeper as to what was going on with you? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that because the two are so ingrained for me um, and, a and a lot of other people, you know, substance abuse is inherently often tied to mental health issues. And, you know, as a teen, I was diagnosed with depression um, and then I developed anxiety and I tried to, I, you know, my whole self-destructive path because I was self-medicating these mental health issues. And um, I just, was kind of living in this alternate reality that I had created because I couldn't deal with the real world. I created this like drunken echo chamber. And um, so once I started seeing a therapist, I realized that I have, I, I need to, I have some things I need to deal with. I have some repressed trauma. I have some, um, 
you know, I have mental health, I, I have anxiety, I have depression, like these are, these are the reasons I drank. And these are, these are, these issues didn't go away. You know, once you, something I want to clarify, once you get sober, everything doesn't get, you know, instantly better. If anything, it's, it can get a little bit harder, because you're no longer self medicating, you're no longer numbing. So you have to deal with all you have to you have to deal with it. <laughs> got to be like, huge. And you're present all the time. And that's like, while I I am grateful for, you know, being present in the moment, it's also this feeling of like, you know, there's no more like having a drink and just kind of like checking out for a minute. It's just like, you're present all the time and you're dealing with like life is going to happen all the time. And there's nothing you can do other than control how you react to it. And I don't, you know, that's something that one of the many things I'm learning in recovery. Well, you know, that's so huge. And I just love all the comments that are coming in saying amazing, you know, that you could get sober by yourself, that you were, you know, you did have help. You did have the therapy. So we do want to mention that yeah. and some support. So, but it's amazing, you know, people hearing your story are really being touched tonight. But I love what you said, Tani, is, you know, realizing that the alcohol was a numbing, was a coping mechanism for you. And so all those years, you didn't even realize that the depression, the anxiety and other things you would turn to the alcohol because it helped you. And that yeah. has to be huge. So how are you learning to cope now? Many people who find themselves, like you said, now I have to live in the present. I have to live in the reality of how I'm feeling in this moment. What have you learned in terms of coping strategies that maybe you could share with someone tonight? I am a big fan of acupuncture. That is That, is, that seriously helps so much physically and mentally. Um, I want to say meditation, but it's real. I have such a love hate relationship with it. I'm not currently meditating at the moment, but I'll get back. Um, I know that helps a lot of people. Um, having some sort of, you know, exercise, whether, you know, I, I run yoga, having, you know, you have this pent up energy. So having a way to get it out. So, or even if it's like a create some sort of creative um, hobby. For me, it's writing, you know, which is, you know, not my hobby, it's a career, but, you know, having some sort of creative outlet, whether it's painting or, you know, like I got I'm learning Spanish, you know, like hobbies, crafts, um, you know, diving into these other parts of yourself um, can be so, so beneficial because once you stop drinking, you find you have so much more time and you find out who your real friends are, which is a really tough part Ooh. of sobriety. Well, you lost some friends there, Tani? Um, I've, I learned who my friends were and who my drinking buddies were. And, mm -hmm. and there yeah, was a difference. There's, there was a difference. And there's, you know, I'm, I haven't like lost any friends, but you just kind of naturally, like when you only have drinking in common with someone you, and one of you stops drinking, that, you know, it kind of fizzles and it's you know, like no hard feelings, but it just kind of happens. Yeah, that's deep. And I love what you talked about is finding an outlet or finding something creative. And I think when you talk about how writing, even though you do writing as your profession, but writing seemed to be really therapeutic for you. What did you find even in doing your blog and um, writing and just sharing, even if you didn't share it with anybody else, how was writing such an instrument, instrumental thing for you and just processing what you were going through? Writing still to this day, it's, it's almost like I don't understand how I feel about something until I write about it. I, Ooh, that's good. 
I, it's like, it's, it sounds weird, but like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what a writing teacher named Ruth Dannon gave me the best advice. She said, she said, let yourself write bad. And that is like, I want, I want to get it tattooed honestly, because it's the best advice. And I think you could apply that to any creative, let yourself paint bad, let yourself whatever, um, which means let yourself make mistakes. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in sobriety, it just really like ha having this blog that is almost, was like a living diary of what I was going through. Um, those first, I kept up with it really like those first four years. I've been sober for five and a half years now and it's turned more into, my writing has turned into more like freelance pieces and, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. But, you know, I wouldn't recommend starting a blog <laughs> to document <laughs> your sobriety because it's, it's pretty, pretty a personal journey. It's journey. pretty messy. <laughs> it's pretty messy. And I look back at some of those early blog posts and I cringe but I honestly like that I have that to reflect on of like, oh, wow, you've you've grown a lot since then. Like, good for you, girl. <laughs> you know, I love what you're saying about that, because I think that's a good piece of wisdom for people who are out there listening tonight. If you're in recovery or someone who's struggling, that writing can help you get in tune with what you're really feeling. And I thought that's deep that you said, Tani, that you didn't even know how you were truly feeling until you wrote you know, until you started writing. And then what I love that you said is that you were able to connect it, like to be able to go back and see how far you come because recovering I'm sure has been a journey for you, girlfriend. So just being able to have that I know has been really instrumental for you. And I heard you're now writing your own memoir. So how did that come about? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm writing a book. It's like, it's part social critique. It's mostly social critique with, you know, some personal experiences in there too. And, it's really about um, it's about the intersection of sobriety and sexuality, which I know you and I will get into in, in a moment. But it's that is, you know, really become my niche in the the sober online sober space is I I write a lot about sex and sobriety, um, dating and sobriety, relationships and sobriety. Um, I didn't realize how how much alcohol impacted my dating and sex life um, until I got sober. And so, and the more I talk about it and write about it and, and interview other people, even if they're still drinking alcohol, you know, alcohol has a really big part in our, in our sex and dating lives, whether you're sober or you, or you still drink, it's, it's inextricably linked to a lot of people. And I think it's that, um, that trope of liquid courage <laughs> that I would love mm -hmm. us to get away from. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I would I never even thought how much of an impact that could have. But I know a lot of people talk about once you get sober, like even just sober sex. And we're going to go there tonight. So I'm hoping there are all adults in the room. But you know, <laughs> even when it came to sober sex and you talk about this, that that intimacy was different. What did you find? What did you have to process and deal with? Or you find that others have to process and deal with when you go from having sex when you're inebriated mm -hmm. to now you're in a whole different lifestyle and navigating um, sex? It's, you know, for me, sobriety equals honesty. And so when, you know, I had to get sober or I had to get honest with myself to get sober, right? Like I had to be like, something's off here. You, you need to step back. You need to, you need to examine some things. So that requires like a lot of self-awareness. And I would say, even say confidence, you know, to like, to dare to live your life without alcohol. Um, so like, 
when you apply that to like sex and dating like that, you don't need liquid courage. You, you are like, if you take a stand for your physical and mental health, that is like, that is so much confidence that, and I don't think people realize that because um, even people that still drink alcohol that like, you know, like they have, they need a glass of wine before they are intimate with their partner or they take a shot before going on a first date. You know, these are the things that are really ingrained, but then in us, in society, but once you stop drinking, you can't do that. You can't, you can't have a glass of wine to relax before you are intimate with your partner. You can't take a shot before you go on a date. So, so what do you do? You know, and that's really what I am exploring in writing this book, but and what do you find that people are doing or what do you find that they have to do? Or are you hearing as you're talking to people that this is really a big deal to them when they're dealing with their sobriety? It is a huge deal. And it's something that is not talked about too often where, you know, in the traditional 12 step model, you know, we're told to not um, have sex or date for a year. Um and if you're in, you know, if you're in a relationship, then no big changes because, you know, the first year of sobriety is really can be really tough. And I totally get that. And I respect why a lot of people do go that year. Um, so but what fascinates me is like, OK, so let's say you go that year. Then what? Mm. You know, <laughs> so it's like, OK, you waited a year, you got to know yourself and you're still on this, you know, never ending journey of recovery. So then what, then how do you go on a date? Then how do you have sex with your partner? How do you bring up wanting to try something new in the bedroom? Well, you know, there's no guidebook for those conversations. And I think they're like, they're so, so important. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that. And you know, we, as we were talking, as we were getting ready for the show, I know Tani, you and I were talking and we said, even from dating and dating sober, is a whole new thing. So we talked about the sexuality and dealing with, you know, talking, having that sex conversation and dealing with that. But even dating, you say, is challenging. And I thought I'd love to have you give some advice to people because, of course, you've been coined the, you know, the sober sex expert. But when it comes to dating and somebody who's dealing in recovery are finding themselves in this new life, how do they do they do you tell people right away? Do you wait until you're close with the person? How do you begin to navigate that? And if you had to give some tips tonight, what would you say? Such a good question. And I, I do have a partner now, and um, but I did have my fair share of sober dating. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a couple different ways you can do it. One is you can put sober on a dating profile, which is that's how it is these days. It's all apps and profiles. Um, so, you know, you could put sober on your dating profile. And I honestly think that I, I prefer that because you're, I see it as weeding out people. You're, you're, it's a filter where people that are, that might feel threatened by sobriety, they're going to swipe left and you're not going to waste your time. Um, and then I also, there's also, you know, you can go on a couple dates with someone and then tell them that you're sober. And while that, is a, is a valid option. I felt like that wasted my time. Mm -hmm. And so, why do you feel like it wasted your time doing it that way? Because uh, for because your sobriety is a mirror for a lot of people that if, if someone has a normal relationship with alcohol, they're not going to have any issues with you, with your sobriety. They're honestly not, they're going to be like, okay, cool. So like, what do you want for dessert? 
you know, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But if it, it was a very big red flag for me when someone had lots of questions or they wanted to explain their relationship to alcohol with me, then I was, I became their, you know, their therapist. And I'm like, oh God, I did not sign up for this. Like, this is a well, date. I wasn't on a date. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, I am like, I'm sober, but it's also like such a small part of me. I'm also like, we could talk about writing and growing up in Texas and how I love tortillas. And there's so many other things we can talk about. Um, so that's why I say I, I preferred putting it on my profile because it was a filter. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, neither one is better. There's pros and cons to both. Um, so I don't know. That's not really <laughs> advice. Yeah, I mean, you, you give a good perspective because I love that you say that, hey, if you're someone that you're new into your, you know, your recovery and you want to just put it out there, put it out there because then the people you know who you're connecting with are already aware with aware of it, but also be mindful. Like you said, if you start in this dating, that it can be a mirror mm -hmm. and challenge other people who who are in denial to have to deal with themselves. And you said that that can, you know, open up a can of worms in terms of what you deal with. But I love that you also said that there were so many people who, um, who did have challenges with alcohol, who were very supportive and like, Hey, okay, you're sober. What's for, you know, what's for dessert? And I love that because that shows that there are people out there who get it and that you can be yourself and you can be honest about those things in conversation. So I love that you said that. And one of the things also, Tani, that I wanted to touch on is when you got real with yourself and you said you had, you know, you're dealing with your emotions, the mental health that you would experience, the depression and anxiety. But then you also found this new part of yourself. You say that getting sober helped you to get in touch with your sexuality. And tell me about that. Because for years, you did not know, I guess, potentially or had come to terms with that you were bisexual. So tell me how the being in sobriety or being in recovery kind of led you to finally admit that to yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I had always been, I had always dated men and women but there was this, like, I had this almost imposter syndrome of you're not bisexual enough. And which is something that is very common in bisexual, in bisexuality. Um, part of it is how it used to be represented until very recently, where, you know, even on such a progressive show like Sex and the City and the L word, they're representing bisexual people as people that have to pick a side and uh, or selfish because they want it all. And, you know, it's like, so like that really, like I had a lot of internalized biphobia to work through. Um, and so like, once I got sober, I, I had this, um, I get, you know, when you get sober, you have a clearer headspace and you can, I can, I was able to prioritize what I wanted to learn about, educate myself on certain things. Um, I got more active in politics. I learned about my sexuality. Um, did it? Oh, so you just had this whole awakening. Oh, yeah. Totally. Like when I was saying earlier how I lived in like an alternate reality, I really did. Like I didn't really care about a whole lot more than like, let's get wasted and let's go to a concert. And like, I mean, it was very like I was a, you know, it was I was a lot more of a shallow person and lived was way, way more impulsive. Um, but now, you know, I actually like literally studied bisexuality and queer culture. 
and um, was able to actually take pride in, in the word bisexual. And, you know, my partner is a man, you know, and I can, I, and we still celebrate my bisexuality. And that means, you know, and that, when I say that, I mean, like he validates my bisexuality and, you know, it's to be with someone who validates that and honors that really means, means a lot. Well, I just think what you said there about the awakening and finding yourself through that sobriety. And I hope that your story just encourages somebody this evening that as you remove the alcohol, as you maybe even go to treatment to do that, as you get back to yourself, you begin to find all these amazing things about yourself or all these things that maybe you weren't ready to admit to yourself. And mm -hmm. I think it would be a beautiful process for people in sharing that. And I know that now you're even on this mission to help people to express themselves in recovery. You're doing, tell me more about these, I guess you're doing like spoken word and all of this around the recovery community and even specifically for the LGBTQ plus community. So tell me about your efforts there just to um, break down some of these stigmas and get people to, to be open and start talking about this. Yeah, I, I have a, you know, a reading series, which is on hold right now for obvious reasons. But um, it was, you know, just I would create, you know, or curate like a panel of like five or six people here in New York City. Um, I, it's called Readings on Recovery. So it's a panel of people that would talk about their recovery journey. And, you know, and it was very important to me to include all types of recovery, whether it's, you know, substance abuse, alcoholism, um, sex addiction, gambling, eating disorders. Like I, I wanted to make sure all different types of recovery were discussed at these readings because, you know, once I got sober, I realized that these are, it's all the same. All of this is the same. You know, my drug of choice was drugs and alcohol and sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes sex. But it was, it's the same as, you know, talking to people with eating disorders, talking to people with gambling addiction. We're all trying to, we're all trying to self-medicate a thing, which is usually something, you know, mental health related. Um, and so it's, it's really important to me to, to bring nuance to the recovery conversation. And then, you know, within that, making sure that there's also LGBT community is represented, people of color are represented. So it's, you know, it's, Diversity in a, in diversity in adversity, I would say, is, mm -hmm. is an important aspect. Let's touch on that a little bit about that diversity in recovery, because I know you mentioned people of color, but also you know the LGBTQ plus community. Why do you think that's so important that we think about inclusivity? Because sometimes we don't talk about that enough. Yeah, I mean, I could talk to you about this for hours, Joy. Um, <laughs> it's. I mean, I think inclusivity and representation are so important where, like I mentioned earlier, you know, how bisexuality was represented on film and television, um, that led to a lot of internalized biphobia for me, where like, that's the, my only reference of bisexuality is this and it's negative. Like, of course, I'm going to have a negative um, feeling about being attracted to men and women. Um, so, you know, that's just an anecdote from my life. But when you apply that to, you know, misrepresentation of people of color, people of other letters of the LGBT community, um, that that leads to a lot of internalization. And that internalization can create trauma, which can lead to self, um, 
like self-destructive habits, often substance abuse or eating disorders. Like, you know, it's, it is all connected. And if we can have a space where, you know, we can, we can talk about inclusivity, we can talk about diversity, not, and not just talk about it, but actually have it, then we're hearing all these different perspectives and we're realizing that we are, you know, we're all one, mm-hmm. not to sound like super crunchy hippie there. <laughs> like we're I say, one. No, this is important. We, like, I know that we all have individual unique experiences, but if we can hear each other's different experiences, then I think that would just create a lot more peace in the world. Oh, I love that. Like, I totally love what you said about if we can just relate and because we're all on our own journeys, right? But there's something we can learn from each person's journey when we come together. So where are you now on your journey, Miss Tani? What do you see that's next for you? I mean, we've been in the midst of this pandemic, you know, now we're hopefully coming out of it, but where are you on this whole recovery journey as we wrap up this evening? I mean, it is never ending, right? It is, you know, I... Um, I'm five and a half years sober now, November of 2015. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I'm writing a book, I'm co-hosting a podcast. I'm, uh, you know, it's so weird that my sobriety is part is like my job. That's a, <laughs> it's a weird thing. Um, but I'm also working on being like appreciating today. That's, that's a, that's a tough thing for me. I'm, very um, goal oriented, almost to my fault, (laughs) to like a detriment, where I, you know, I'm like goals, 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 achieve, 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 to um, almost to the point of not appreciating the everyday moment and thinking that, you know, a day off is lazy. And so I'm trying to juggle, you know, a day job plus um, creative work and just being a human, being a partner, um, being a daughter, you know, being like, all of letting myself be all of these things and not let it just be like work, work, work. And, and I, I think that is part of my recovery journey because it's also tied to mental health of, you know, not thinking I'm enough, not thinking I'm doing enough. And um, I, hopefully next time we talk, I'll have uh, <laughs> maybe I'll figure that out. You know, I think we're all in that place of, you know, figuring it out. And I see people coming in saying congrats to you on your five years of sobriety. And I know, People have been inspired by you tonight, Tani. And I, I want to give you an opportunity before we wrap up today, because there's probably somebody listening here who is in denial where you were five and a half years ago. And they need to hear something tonight. Maybe there's something that might get them to go to treatment or seek help or even just to start down this path of recovery. So if there's one thing you would say tonight to that person who's listening what would be your words? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I would say my my biggest moment was when I stopped comparing my relationship with alcohol to other people's relationship with alcohol. And what I mean by that is I would say, well, I don't drink as much as her or at least I don't do that when I drink because when I was comparing what I wasn't, I was not seeing what I was. And that was, that was not, I mean, that let me stay in denial, you know, like, which is, it's, it's tough. It's really tough to get out of that headspace. So I would say, you know, 
stop comparing your relationship to alcohol with someone else's and utilize being in the information age, you know, look up, you know, you don't have to go to an AA meeting. You don't have to go to rehab tomorrow. Um, you know, just read a, read an article about sobriety, look up hashtag sober on Instagram. Um, you know, buy, buy a book about someone else's journey. You know, just, there's so many resources out there that like, maybe you just need to cut back. Maybe you need complete abstinence, like who knows, but just know that you're not alone. Yeah. You know, I think that's really big. And actually we, when we wrap this up for someone who does feel, cause there's sometimes where people, like you said, like yourself, they can stop cold Turkey and go down that, but there are also people who need help. And that's where, why we wanted to do this, you know, do what we do because at American addiction centers, we do offer people that lifeline for those who feel like they do need it. And so, you know, like you said, there's many different paths to get there. And we thank you, Tani, for sharing your journey, for being open. And, you know, what you said really touched me in the end is don't compare your journey to anybody else's. But if you were tonight finding yourself that the journey with yourself and your relationship with alcohol isn't healthy, that that's a sign that you need to do something about it. So Tani, this has been wonderful. Um, we've learned so much from you and thank you for just being so transparent. And that's going to do it for another episode of Addiction Talk, everyone. And everyone have a great night.